Welcome to Destiny Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Eric Smith. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit DestinyDayton.com. Hallelujah. Proverbs 9, 9 and 10. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? Say it. Fear of the Lord. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What is insight? Knowledge of the Holy One, the Lord, whatever your translation says. It's all good. You can be seated. So today is a very simple topic um, that we're going to go pretty deep into. Um, And it's amazing how thorough notes I've got here in front of me, and I feel like I've only been able to scratch the surface on on this idea that God has given me. We're going to look today at knowing the Holy One. What does it mean to know the Holy One? How do we know God? We throw that word around a lot. What does it mean, though, to know God? And then how is it that the fear of the Lord brings wisdom to us? So today in the news, um, we just got approval ratings back for this person, that person, Congress, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to talk about the results of those, whatever. If you care, then you already know. Those are useful tools, right? We use approval ratings to get a temperature check on the general populace. Hey, uh, are we pro? Are we anti? Do we like what's going on? Do we not like what's going on? And I think it would be interesting to see what would happen if we took an approval poll in the U.S. for the father. What would happen if we took an approval poll for Jesus? What if we took an approval poll for the Holy Spirit? And interestingly enough, some people have attempted to do that, and my belief and the data itself backs that, generally speaking, pretty good approval ratings across the board. You'll find a majority of Republicans and Democrats approving. You'll find men and women approving. You'll find Hindus approving because they're fine adding Jesus to their list of other gods. right? You'll find... Um, people who are following Islam, approving because they see Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher, as uh, a, a you know, powerful man of God, right? You'll see even atheists and certain Jewish people still approving of Jesus, despite, especially for those following Judaism, that's kind of a heretical person, <laughs> Jesus. A lot of people in those belief sets will still say, eh, generally I approve because I feel like his teachings, you know, are, are a net benefit to society. There's some good stuff to, some good takeaways that he said, right? And so our society, by and large, is a fan of the God that they've heard about. So how is it then? How do we reconcile that with what we see in Scripture where Jesus said, people will hate me to the point where parents will turn over their children to be jailed and killed because they hate me so much? Something doesn't match up if Jesus said the hatred of him will be that strong, and yet if you go and talk to somebody on the street, odds are pretty good they'll say, yeah, I, I approve of God. I approve of Jesus. I approve of the Holy Spirit. We need to find a way to reconcile these two thoughts because they, they don't line up, right? I think, and I would submit to you today, that the most reasonable explanation I have for that disparity is that the God our culture knows the Jesus that our culture knows, the Holy Spirit that our culture knows aren't really the real thing. 
in a lot of ways. In many ways, we have traded the notion that we are created in his image, that he was first and foremost, for the idea that we can remake him to be in our image, to look like us, to look like we would want him to be. Romans 1 warns us about all types of perversion that will enter into a society when they trade the glory of the immortal God for images shaped after man. And we see that today in our culture. The God that is at the forefront of our culture is the imaginations of what we hope God will be. But I can tell you that that approach is useless. You can imagine me to be 12 foot tall, but you will not cause me to change my height. It's not going to happen. And yet, your belief causing me to be 12 feet is still infinitely more likely to actually happen than our imaginations of God causing God Almighty to change who He is. Not only that, but I can think of nothing more arrogant, more pompous, more foolish or dangerous than to stick your finger in the face of God Almighty and attempt to explain to Him who He ought to be. My first point today, and I've only got two, that doesn't mean we're going to be done in five minutes, though. Sorry to break you. <laughs> but my first point is this. Only God can define who He is. We don't have to imagine who God is. We don't have to fabricate an image of God. We simply need to look at what He has plainly stated about Himself. He's not trying to hide from us. And let me start with that term, because right off the bat, we've already got an issue for many quote-unquote believers, as soon as I say the word himself. In recent years, there has been a significant uptick in churches and individuals who have been pushing the idea that God is a she, God is our heavenly mother, or some kind of in-between gender-neutral God, right? Now, we know, obviously, that God is not a man as we are, right? He is holy. He is altogether different. But the Bible is still the Bible. Followers of this ideology will cite verses about how God is like a nursing mother or a mother bear or a mother bird. And if you've read the Bible, you know that those are in there, right? Those are part of Scripture. With that said, in each of those handful of examples, it's very clear that God is saying, like a fill-in-the-blank, I too feel this way. Like a fill-in-the-blank, I think about you this way. There's a difference. If Derrick Henry has an amazing game today, which he will, if you have him on your bench in fantasy, um, quit now because you don't know what you're doing. But if he goes out and has a monster day today, as I expect he will, and they have a press conference afterwards and he goes, man, I was an animal out there today. I was like a beast. She probably wouldn't because he's just, He's more chill. He's cool. He's humble. But if he started saying all that, we would all understand that he's not asking us to throw a leash on him, take him to the zoo, and put him in a cage. Right? Not one person would make the assumption that he is saying he quite literally is an animal. Right? 
And so for every instance we have of God expressing an attribute that is like a mother, there is a slew of examples on the other side that say he is a father. You see the difference again there. When he refers to himself, he uses he, him pronouns. Okay? Here's the irony. And I'm just put on your steel-toed boots because it's going to get worse. Come and stepping on toes today. I'm not trying to, but we need to know the God that he says he is. The irony here is many of these movements, many of these churches that are so quick to assign a, a female name to God will rush to correct and, and, and rebuke members of their congregation who would dare misgender someone who identifies as a different gender than what they were born as. They will insist that we must use preferred pronouns for literally everyone with one exception, God Almighty. God has told us what he prefers to be called. Why is it that the same people who are all on board with that idea for man will not allow God to use his preferred pronouns? I hope your ears are open today. I hope that you understand the folly of a worldview that says man is capable of defining their own gender, but God somehow is not. To believe that the God who designed hormones and chromosomes and reproductive organs must get with the times concerning gender is an arrogant worldview. The God who made all things, who even allowed thought to be possible, who designed every aspect of humanity is the only one who has the right and authority to define what gender is. He's the only one who can do it. Psalm says this about those who would seek to throw off the natural design of God and, and His law and His structure. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them with his wrath. The ideology that man is the utmost authority on gender or fill in the blank, that's one example of thousands I could give you, is a dangerous ideology. It is dangerous because, first off, it, it, there's inaccuracies built into it, but what we just read, it puts you in conflict with a terrifying God. It says he terrifies them. Now, I want to make a very clear distinction, okay? So if you've got a tweet half written out about how you're leaving the church, hit pause for a minute. And at the end, if you still feel like sending it, then tag me. Um, God does not hold wrath for someone who's struggling with who they are. He is compassionate. He is well aware that there are very real feelings that people have when they don't feel like the person they are on the inside matches the body that they have. 
he understands that that's not something people are making up. People really feel that way. It is not a sin to feel conflicted and unable to resolve confusion between who you feel you are and what you see in the mirror. Okay? We as a church need to be compassionate towards this as well. I can only imagine how difficult those things are to navigate and reconcile. I can't even begin to put myself in those shoes. What we do with those feelings, though, that's what matters. We have a choice to ask for God's help and enlist the help of trusted brothers and sisters in Christ to navigate to a position where my view of myself aligns with who God says I am. The other choice is we can thumb our nose at our Creator and insist that He must accept what I say in spite of what He has already proclaimed. Do you see? That's where the rubber meets the road. It's the decision that defines the approach, or our, our approach, and that decision defines ultimately our standing with God. The Bible says that pride comes before destruction. But the Bible also says that he gives grace to the humble. So your response, if you're in a situation like this, or again, apply it to anything you've got going on in your life, your response, pride or humility, and not your feelings in the moment, are what will determine whether you receive destruction or grace. I encourage everyone listening today, choose grace. We see in Deuteronomy, God makes it clear the way he says it is, I lay before you life and death, blessings and curses. And like a teacher sitting down, scooting his chair next to you and saying, the answer is A. The next line of those verses says, choose life. He's not trying to trick you. He's laying out the choices before you, but he... he He's given you the answer. Choose life. God isn't scared off by your feelings. God will happily walk beside you through all of them. I want you to know that today. I mentioned earlier that God is terrifying. That may be uh, new to you. <laughs> that may be the first time you've heard that said from a pulpit, depending on uh, how long you've been at various churches, right? The movement to feminize God, if you will, didn't spring up out of nowhere, though. It was the logical conclusion of decades of preaching, Bible studies, worship musics that, music <laughs> that largely ignored some of those more masculine, traditionally, traits of God. This has become so prevalent that many new believers can struggle when they first read the Bible for themselves because the God that they're reading about doesn't seem to match the God that they've been told about. He may seem like a stranger to them. It may be very difficult to reconcile the God that's preached in many places with the God who sends almost all of humanity to a flood and drowning. It may be hard to reconcile the Jesus that has been heard preached so many times in our country lately with one that would return with a sword in hand and with the blood of his enemies on his robe. It may be difficult to reconcile 
the Holy Spirit when the one preached doesn't seem to match the Holy Spirit who stirred up anger. I mean, I'm just reading the Bible in King Saul's heart to the point where he diced up two oxen and sent the pieces of it to the leaders of Israel as a death threat and a declaration of war saying, you better fight alongside of God or this will happen to you. Does that sound like the Holy Spirit that we hear in our sermons or on the radio? These actions, these feelings are just as much a part of God and his character as that part of God that embraces us like a caring nursing mother. What would our culture look like if people had in their heads these attributes as part of their well-rounded idea of who God is? I'll tell you, our culture would look different. The fear of God when handled properly is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. There's a phrase that isn't used much today, uh, but, you know, so-and-so is a, they're a God-fearing man, they're a God-fearing woman. I almost feel like I need to say it in a southern accent, because that's where you hear it more, right? Interestingly enough, um, just for kicks, I looked up God-fearing as a definition, just to see what someone else might define it as. Obviously, I've got a pretty good grasp on it. Oxford Dictionary, when they had the used-in-a-sentence part, They said, you know, so-and-so, they're an honest, God-fearing woman, was their sentence in in their example. So even the world can see that integrity and honesty is directly linked to how much a person fears God. That if someone is God-fearing, they will innately be more integrous. I think it's time to bring God-fearing back as a compliment. I'm thankful that there are brothers and sisters in this room right now who are God-fearing individuals. And I trust them more because of that. Interestingly enough, we can see kind of an inverse correlation, right? When one goes up, the other one goes down. Between the usage of that term, so-and-so being a God-fearing person, and that being considered a compliment, to the depictions that we see and how frequently we see someone get cast as the role of God Almighty in a show, in a movie, in a book, whatever, right? As we've stopped focusing so much on being God-fearing, now all of a sudden anyone can play God and it's no big deal. Even the depictions of this have shifted. So today, it wouldn't be out of place to watch a TV show, movie, read a book, whatever, and someone gets to play the character of God. And it might be a caricature, might be some goofy person. It might just be a sweet old man or woman sitting on a park bench having a conversation with you, getting your life straight. The depictions of God wind back a good number of years. One of the earliest ones that kind of ruffled some feathers was having someone play the voice of God in the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. That was a big deal. And yet, even the way that they went about that was so different. Because first off, they didn't make up lines. They didn't treat God as goofy, playful, or silly, right? They basically had him read from the script, which was the Bible. (laughs) And I found this interesting quote as I was preparing for this from the director. He said, it was agreed among us out of reverence 
for the part of the voice of God, the name of the man who played it should not be revealed. If you own that movie, go watch the credits. No one is credited with the voice of God. There was a reason because they understood that was a holy undertaking for a man to portray God. So they refused to give credit to any man for playing the role of God. Now I want to be clear here. Take off my rose-colored glasses. That era was far from perfect. Okay? There were those at the time who claimed to fear God but picketed for segregated schools. Right? That too was arrogance and it was putting words in God's mouth. Again, so let's don't get confused here. Don't say, well, but, 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 I get it. But with that being said, the fear of God was still at that time seen as a virtue and not a topic that should be avoided or kept for senior year level theology class. I think we could stand a little more fear of God in our culture today. In the Bible, we see that everyone who encountered God or one of his messengers was struck with fear. They didn't chuckle with them sitting on a park bench. They didn't flippantly play the God card whenever they wanted to get something done their way without any sense of fear of, of, man, should I be slapping God's name on this? Should I not? They quivered. God being fearsome is not problematic if you believe that he is trustworthy. So many have attempted to convince people and I believe this is backwards, that he is trustworthy because he's harmless. I don't think that's the way to go about it. First off, it's not true. <laughs> I think the right approach is to say he hates rebellion and sin. He has all power and every right to destroy us as a result of it. And yet, despite that, he still wills for us to come to repentance to the point where he gave his son to die to make that possible. I feel like that is a much more compelling argument for why we should trust God. He absolutely is a warrior. He is terrifying, but he is wonderful and he is good. As a side note, if someone ever goes out, you, you think God's good, huh? Well, why does God let that happen? Okay? You ready? Here's your answer. It's not that tricky. Okay? It's a little reductive, but it, it pretty much answers it. Why does evil happen? Because of sin. That, literally, that is what it boils down to. And so if you want God to stop evil from happening, what does he have to do? He has to eliminate the sinners. But here's the problem. Conveniently, everyone who asks you that question always has an idea of what line God should stop at. He should take out the murderers, the abusers, but not those who cheat on their spouse. Those guys are okay. They're not creating evil in the world. God doesn't view it that way. He doesn't conveniently place the threshold for the evil that he eliminates by taking out sinners just above your head. What line would you like him to stop at? The murder line? The abuse line? The hating line? The lying line? The lusting with your eyes line? I mean, if God's consistent, then we just got to have a full do-over, right? 
Thank God he's not. I hate that evil exists, but boy, am I thankful that he's given me a chance and not just wiped me off the face from the moment I was born. So there's your answer. Keep that in your back pocket for when you need it. (laughs) Because he is trustworthy, all who belong to him should see his power as a reason to praise and not some trait to keep hidden in a back room. Right? David was thankful when he described God as someone who melts mountains with his very presence, heralded by storm clouds. Right? That was said in praise and thanksgiving. We need him to be our defender, okay? Now, this is one for the kids out there, or Dylan. There were two movies growing up that really just stood out to me a lot. And as an adult, they still stand out to me a lot. And you'll chuckle when I say them, but stick with me. The first is one of the greatest underrated movies of all time, 101 Dalmatians. Now, as a kid, and and even more so as an adult, there's a particular scene that is just striking. The tone shifts abruptly in it. We see Pongo and and Purdy, right? The parents, if you haven't seen it, of the puppy Dalmatians, right? They're loving. They're rolling around on the floor with their kids. They're encouraging. They're, They're just good, happy parents, right? And all of a sudden, they break into a room, and they see two men threatening their puppies, and a switch flips. And even the animation style that they use changes the way they draw the characters. And you see this sweet, loving, cuddling, joking around, messing around dad turn into a feral beast and absolutely go nuts to keep his kids safe. He was terrifying. I'll tell you, those puppies needed a terrifying dad. And they were thankful for it. The other movie, not that far off from the first one, is The Lion King. There's a scene where Simba is walking up to his father after disobeying, and, and the, the music, the, the lighting, everything, it's, it's chilling, right? You feel the weight of it as he puts his tiny little paw in his dad's huge paw print. There's a weight to that scene. but you're not afraid for what's going to happen to Simba because Mufasa has been established as trustworthy already. It captures what fearing God can look like without going into this unhealthy or unfounded associations with abuse. A maturing Simba eventually appreciates the benefit of that fearful moment he had, right? Because it helped him grow. It helped him be disciplined. It helped him mature. And I'll tell you, he was very thankful that he has a fearsome father when three hyenas had him back to a corner, right? Y'all are going to go home and watch this again, aren't you? I encourage you, do it. (laughs) Now, I know Disney didn't set out to write gospel truths, right? But can I tell you, and this is going to sound goofy, but roll with me, it's very goofy to shrink back from a biblical view of God and the fact that he is fearsome if you can watch those movies and cheer for Pongo and cheer for Mufasa, right? It's the same thing. We can embrace him because he is trustworthy. Another scene from The Lion King I love is when the hyenas are talking about how 
just saying the name Mufasa sends chills down their spine, right? It's a great scene. Our God has the same effect on his enemies. The Bible says that demons believe in God and they tremble as a result of it. I was a VeggieTales kid growing up, okay? So I'm going to need some audience participation here. God is bigger than the boogeyman. There we go, okay? That was an okay lesson, right? It was, it was age-appropriate for kids, but I'm like, okay, the boogeyman ain't real, y'all. Like, we've got, we've got an actual real example that we can use. So I would like to submit, if I get a time machine, one of my stops along the way, going back to when they wrote that and saying, hey, let's twist it up. Demons tremble at the son of man. Right? It's just as catchy. You're going to be singing that all day, too. And it's, we're not talking hypotheticals and some cutesy pretend thing. Like, that's actually really a thing. Let's stop covering up God's power. Let's stop covering up and making excuses for him being fearsome. Let's celebrate it. Let's celebrate it. I guarantee you that everyone who has come through our deliverance ministry at this church and gotten set free is very thankful for a fearsome God. Because can I tell you, if it weren't for a fearsome God, everyone in this room would be subject to torment and you would have no recourse. I'm thankful that demons quiver at the name of Jesus. Any church preaching a harmless God will absolutely have a hard time seeing success, praying for healing, praying for deliverance, anything like that. They're going to have a very hard time getting traction if they will not preach or if they are preaching a harmless God. We need God to be everything that he is, not just part of him. We need to let him speak for himself and not try to make excuses or not try and force him to be something that he hasn't told us he is. The God of the flood is just as worthy of our affection as the God who wipes our tears. The Jesus with the sword is just as much a loving bridegroom as the one who chose not to cast the first stone. The world needs the Holy Spirit that stirred a king to anger and war and threats just as much as it needs the comforter and the counselor. The God of all these things is working today. And something worth considering is he's doing much of that work through us. And so my final point I want to touch on here is if only God can define who he is, then it also means he's the only one who can define what it means, what it looks like to bear his image. I think the obvious first place to start is those who bear his image need to make sure that the Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit that we're representing is we're representing him the way that he would like to be revealed, right? We can't perpetuate this one-dimensional approach to God that has invaded our culture. In the same way that God is protective of his name, he's jealous for his name, we ought to be too. I think as image bearers, we should absolutely take offense when others attempt to tell us who God is and they got it all wrong. That should bug us. If he is our bridegroom, then let's not settle for slander or half-truths half about him. Okay? My wife Stacy over there, she's awesome. If we were 
a week out from our wedding day. We wind the clock back nine years and a little bit <laughs> uh, and some change. And you tried to come up to her and have a conversation about who Dylan was, and you just totally whiffed. And the Dylan you were describing was nothing like the Dylan that she was marrying. She probably wouldn't just roll with it, right? She'd probably be like, hey, have you t actually talked to him? Did, uh, let me tell you about who he is, because that's not actually who he is, right? So our bridegroom, if someone is trying to describe him to us, and they're describing someone who's nothing like him, we're getting ready to marry him. <laughs> that should bug us, like someone's insulting our spouse, right? And so the next time you hear someone refer to Jesus as, oh, he's a, he's a good prophet, he's a good teacher, and they leave it there, I give you permission to take offense to that. Now, don't respond obnoxiously offended, right? You can be offended and let your words come out a little different way, but don't just roll with it, right? Jesus claimed to be God. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise and get away with it, okay? He absolutely said that he was God. If he wasn't doing that, they wouldn't have nailed him to a cross. That was his charge, right? Also, all the people who were with him wrote down how he said that. And I'm going to trust their word better than Joe Schmo 2,000 years later saying, well, actually, uh, let's go with the people who were there and heard it. Okay? So if he claimed he was God, there are only three choices for who Jesus was. Okay? Option number one, he thought he was God and he wasn't. He's a madman. Not too many madmen make good teachers or good prophets. Not really an option. Option number two, he knew he wasn't God and he was deceiving everyone. I don't know too many heads of pyramid schemes that I would call a good teacher. Title doesn't fit. Option three, and this is the right answer, is he was God. If he claimed he was God, there is literally no room for anyone to call him a good teacher. That's not a choice. He's God or he's a horrible teacher. There's nothing in between. Do you understand that? I give you permission to correct in love any fool who would tell you that he's just a good teacher. Because that absolutely is a foolish worldview to hold. We also need to be aware of how it sounds when we introduce Jesus to people for maybe the first time. In college, I had a moment where I kind of inadvertently uh, was being just not respectful of, of, of someone else. I was introducing my younger sister, and I have her permission to tell this story, so I'm not doing it all over again, okay? But I was introducing her to a bunch of friends, and I kept introducing her as, hey, this is my adopted sister. And, you know, for me, I meant that in a positive way. I was proud that she was adopted. I was proud of how God put our family together, and I was absolutely proud of her. It took nothing away from her the way I was saying it, but she very politely pulled me aside that night and was like, hey, like, can't I just be your sister? I was like, wow, okay. And this amazing thing happened. From that point forward, get this, I started calling her my sister because that's how she wanted to be introduced. I didn't dig my heels in and say, well, I'd actually rather call you my adopted sister, so I'm just going to keep doing that. No, that would make no sense. Now let's take that 
And let's apply that to Jesus. When we're introducing Jesus to people, are we looking for what's the most comfortable way for me to address him and introduce him to new people? Or has anyone ever taken the time to pause and go, Jesus, how would you like me to introduce you? What kind of introduction would you like me to give for you? Many of our quote-unquote gospel presentations, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but maybe gospel presentation is a bit strong, is a drive-by, God bless you, or Jesus loves you, written on a receipt, or tossed in at the end of a conversation as we're leaving, so they can't ask any questions, right? <laughs> Sometimes, uh, most of the time, when we get into a more thorough gospel presentation, the message central to the, the whole presentation is Jesus loves you. Okay? Now I can already see some people like, mm, what you getting at here, Dylan? Say, hang with me. Is that wrong? No. Jesus absolutely loves people. But I think it's worth at least taking a second and, and pausing and saying, okay, that's how I want to introduce him. But is that how he would want me to introduce him? How do we know? Well, if we look at sermons directed specifically to non-believers that are littered throughout the book of Acts, you won't see a single one of them that had the central message, Jesus loves you. That wasn't the focal point of a single one. In fact, the only kind of you-focused statement that I could find, maybe there's more, but the only ones I could find digging through was something to the effect of, it was you and your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. It was you and your stubborn neck, stiff-necked approach rejecting God that caused Jesus to have to die. I was the only you-focused anything that I could find. That's slightly different. I don't know if you caught the nuance there. Then Jesus loves you. The main theme of these messages, the focal point was Jesus is God. He died, and just as God had planned from ancient times. He raised him back to life, and now you must repent and believe in him. That was the message, not Jesus loves you. We'll tell you about the rest later. So again, it's true. There's nothing inherently wrong with saying that, but is that how Jesus wants to be introduced? He told us, actually, very clearly in the Great Commission, how he wanted to be introduced. He didn't say, go unto all nations and tell them Jesus loves you. He said, no, <laughs> make disciples of them. Teach them to obey everything I command. He didn't mention, tell them I love them. Is it much easier to go tell someone Jesus loves you than to go tell someone, hey, you must obey everything Jesus commanded? That's my preferred method, the Jesus love you method. But again, if we're introducing him, then we should take into account how he would like to be introduced. Again, a thought experiment for you, but I would like to kind of challenge you to give it a shot, doing something different. Next time you're talking to someone about Jesus, try to make the focus about how they should obey Jesus and who he is. And how they should let him disciple them. Try to make it through the whole thing using the words of 
the preachers and acts and not jumping back to your default of, and Jesus loves you. Okay? Again, is that a wrong message? No, but if it was good enough for the early church to win literally thousands of converts in days, might be worth a shot. Might be worth a shot. What else can we glean about our role as image bearers when we allow God to define his own characteristics? I think in the same way that many in the body overemphasize his gentleness, which again is there, but we do it at the expense of his power, we often have the same expectations and and kind of the trickle-down effect is how we view followers of Jesus and what that should look like. If our aim to be is to be Christ-like, but our only exposure to Christ is a seeker-sensitive, nice-guy-only Jesus, then the Christ that we will become Christ-like is something that we were never intended to be because we actually aren't becoming Christ-like as Christ defines himself. Growing up, I had in my head the idea that the perfect Christian would be someone who is the penultimate nice guy, right? Because you got good guys and bad guys, right? And it's the bad guys who do stuff and say stuff that makes people feel hurt. And it's the good guys that don't do that. So if I can avoid hurting anyone in any way, shape, or form with my words, actions, thoughts, deeds, then I am destined for a glorious crown when I stand before the throne. Right? That was my idea. I was well aware of the teachings that I was supposed to turn the other cheek. Right? I was well aware of the mandate to walk in humility, to treat my neighbor as myself. And again, those are absolutely all still true. I'm not invalidating that in the slightest. But nobody, as I was growing up, and maybe they didn't, I just had my ears off. I won't blame it on them. I wasn't aware that there were mandates, though, that says, uh, Jesus, for example, said, those who believe in me will cast out demons in my name. You jump over to 2 Corinthians 10, and we see that we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verses 5 and 6 says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. That's part of the equation. Neither the mandate to endure suffering nor the mandate to destroy darkness outweigh the other. We need both. The call to Jesus was never to be weak and defeated and and trodden over. It was to have a powerful voice, to be powerful in thought, powerful in deed, powerful in action, and to submit that power in obedience and humility to the will of God. That's who he wants us to be. I find it emblematic, and I know there's scientific reasons for this. Again, don't put words in my mouth of what I'm saying. But it's not coincidental, I think, that at the same time we've got a a preaching of a feminized God and we've got a viewpoint that, you know, to be a good Christian is to just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow and don't hurt anybody. We also have a absolute crisis in the last 50 years of birth rates and of fertility dropping off drastically and testosterone levels in men and women in every country in the world right now 
is plummeting. Like That's a real thing. And again, I'm not saying that this is causing this, but again, I, I think it's emblematic of, of what's going on. Now, obviously, I'm not saying, you know, hey, you should be embarrassed if, like, you're, you're taking meds for testosterone levels. Again, don't put words in my mouth, right? I'm not saying you're a sinner. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying you're whatever. But a culture that vilifies certain masculine attributes of God that he has placed in men and intended to put to good use is going to have problems. It is not the plan of God for his image bearers to only bear 20% of his image. And it shows. Depression across the board, and, and specifically in men, is substantially on the rise. Can I tell you, our sons need to know that it's okay to have powerful attractions to women. It's okay. God put that there. They need someone to come alongside of them and teach them that that is a blessing from God that can be harnessed and used at the proper time and the proper way to be a blessing. It's a good thing. But if we try and snuff that out, or if we try and not talk about it in the church, and if we try to do nothing with it, then what are we going to do? We're going to let the world teach our sons what to do with that emotion, and they're going to end up practicing it in the shadows and buried in guilt and shame and sin. Our sons need to know that there is a time and a place to be combative. That there are reasons to fight and there are reasons to argue. I want my son to feel empowered to, class, to stand up for his classmates and put a bully in their place if need be. If that's where God has him in, in that time and place. I don't want him to feel like his only two choices are being a helpless, hapless victim or letting a bully instruct him what to do with his anger and power. New dads need to be able to bring correction and discipline to their kids in the same loving way that our Heavenly Father does. Discipline is a good thing. New dads shouldn't feel like the only option that they have to correct their children is reading a New Age book called Correcting with Kisses. Okay? I don't know if it exists, but it probably does. Okay? If the only options that we give young men are grow up in the church but leave everything that God has given you that makes you a man at the door. Or you can go and take that and the world will define what a man is and teach you how to put it to a destructive use. Then we're not setting ourselves up for success as a church. Again, I'm going to be careful here. you got to stick with me. I'm fully... Okay, I'm putting this in place up front. I am fully, fully in support of women preaching, being missionaries, being leaders in every sense, as God calls them to. One of the names, uh, my daughter Amelia, okay, we named her that because it means work, and my hope is that nothing, no cultural idea, no nothing will get in the way of her doing whatever work God has called her to. Okay, I believe in that. With that being said, I feel like there are churches that have a lot of Gideons 
who have decided that it's more spiritual to remain humble and hunkered down in their wine press. And as a result, we have many women who have a calling to be a Mary or a Susanna attending to Jesus who have been thrust into the role of a Deborah that they were not made for. Women, I want you to be powerful in the Lord. Hey, God gave you all some testosterone too, right? We don't have a monopoly on it. You guys have it too, all right? I want every Deborah to be a Deborah. But I have talked to more than one woman who has felt tired, who has felt stretched too thin, who's felt just beat up because they were filling a void that was intended for a man who thought he was doing God a favor by staying out of the fight. We cannot allow the attributes of God that we neglect to become absent from the people who bear his image on the earth, man or a woman. And men, I'll level with you. I know that this topic is not as simple and straightforward as I'm making it out to be. Maybe you grew up and you had an example of strength and, and, and anger and, and some of those kind of more traditionally masculine traits used in a negative way, used in an abusive way. I understand the recoil from that. Maybe your spouse had that experience and they would prefer you to, to be more reserved, more pulled back and not display those things because that's what makes her feel safe. Those are real things. But can I tell you, the same thing that's true for us is the same thing that's true for God. We can live under his protection without anxiety because he is trustworthy. We just talked about that with God. So men, you are allowed to be strong if you can be trustworthy. You can be trusted to be powerful and dangerous if you allow the Holy Spirit to give you self-control and if you will tell the truth. Part of the reason we've seen, I believe, so many men shying back and, and feeling stuck and feeling like they shouldn't do anything, can't do anything, is because of a fear of, of what if they get out of hand? What if they become that toxically masculine man? In many cases, the answer is tell the truth and put God in control and you can be whatever you want to be. There's power and truth. I haven't always done the right thing. I still don't always do the right thing. I'm getting better, though. I'm aiming for that small target, as Pastor preached about last week. But one decision I can say that I am proud of is that after spending a year demonstrating to myself that I had control in the areas of my attractions and lust, God gave me the green light to pursue Stacy. Our first kiss happened 16 months later at the altar on our wedding day. Now, people who hear that often get it wrong. And I'm not saying that's, you have to do it exactly like we did. Again, don't mishear me. But the idea people get a lot of times, they jump to their own conclusion. They assume that I just wanted to marry my best buddy, and both of us had kind of this muted affection for one another. And it just wasn't as strong as what they know. I'll tell you, that wasn't the case. <laughs> she was a wonderful friend. She was an amazing woman of God, absolutely. But can 
Can I tell you a major driving force in me wanting to marry her was that I had a powerful and strong attraction to her. Okay? I did. Sorry, Rana. <laughs> My daughter's in with me today. No, this is good. You should hear it. Now, I never expressed that in an inappropriate way to her, right? But let's just say it was safe to say there was no secret that I felt that way about her. Okay? She knew that I felt ways about her that I didn't feel about just a friend. Okay? It was clear. Now, there were countless reasons for me to ditch the plan that Stacy and I had come up with for how we were going to handle physical interaction, and those excuses that I could have used came up daily. Okay? But with that being said, I had something more important that I was going after. I wanted her to know that she could trust me. That she could trust me to feel the full strength of my God-given desires that he has placed in me as a man, and I could still remain in control. She knew that I didn't have to dumb down or quiet or, or shun what God had given me to be trustworthy and safe. And can I tell you, that is absolutely worth 16 months. Conveying that to her is absolutely worth it. And I would do it again. As I wrap up here, I just want to call on men to embrace who God has made you to be. It's time to put aside laziness or passivity or fear that we've conveniently disguised as humility or, or safety. We are at our best when we are doing what God has called us with the tools he has given us. And we know that. There's a reason that the, the culture that we have and the way that men interact with it, so many are depressed now. We talked about that already. There's a reason that the video game industry and adult websites are making billions and billions of fistfuls of dollars because they know that no matter how much we try and hide from it, explain it away, try and, try and vilify it and treat it like it's bad, that there is something innate in men that craves these things. But can I tell you, men today, and I'm not going to quantify what age, you don't have to plug in a controller to imagine what it feels like to have someone rely on you. You can do it in real, you know, in real life. You can do it. You don't have to plug in a controller to imagine what it feels like to take risks or to stand up for the helpless. You can just do it. For real. I will tell you that when you die, no one is going to turn on your Xbox and transcribe all the Xbox achievements that you earned into your obituary. When you're at that point, it's only the real achievements that count. Man, you don't need to click a link to imagine what it would be like if someone were attracted to you. You can work on becoming a better man of God. Work on looking like the man God has created you to be. You can become a 
more appealing version of yourself by stepping into the fullness of God's plan for your life. And at the right time, God will bring you the right person and you'll get to experience it for real. And you know they're not pretending. Don't be the guy who mocks a woman for what they spend getting their hair done and their nails did. And yet you spend just as much on a subscription or a video game to give you a false sense of those things. I mean, at least they're doing something in real life, right? (laughs) The body of Christ is better served with strong and disciplined men than they are with agreeable and harmless ones. Your family is better served with you, suited up in the armor of God, casting down mindsets and casting down strongholds than it is letting your kids run amok unchecked and then spending 60 seconds at the end of the day praying, God, speak to my children so I don't have to. God has made you a man for a reason. Learn to use the tools that he gave you and don't be ashamed of them. As we close today and get ready to take communion, go ahead and grab your communion elements. I want us to think about the Lord and the fullness of who he really is. Not our contrived notion, but who he has told us he really is. If the idea of fearing God is something new to you this morning, And the only Jesus that you've heard that got you here this morning is basically a teddy bear that died and rose again. Then can I tell you, you can trust him. If you're someone who has been a believer for a while, but you've struggled with the idea of the fear of the Lord, that's something that causes you anxiety, causes you stress. I invite you to express your trust in him today. Allow yourself to settle in under his protection. The very bread and juice that you're holding are symbols. They're proof, they're evidence that he can be trusted. The bread of his body the juice that represents his blood is proof to us that a God who can powerfully hate sin to the point that it must be punished by death still sent his son to die because he loves and cares for you. that doesn't convey trust, then I have no idea what it conveys. You can trust a God who has every right to do that, but chose to give his son instead. That's what trustworthiness looks like. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This message and other resources are available at DestinyDayton.com.